All right. We are wrapping up today our series in Hebrews. Um, this will be our turned out to be a seven-week series. I'm never quite sure when I start these things how long they're going to go. Um, we, uh, I'll just tell you now, we, we are, we're not going to quite make it to 13. <laughs> There's 13 chapters. Uh, I'm just going to leave 13 for you to study on your own. Um, but we are going to get through uh, 11 and, and 12 today. Um, we've seen time and time again how Jesus is greater than anything and that making him that making that truth the cornerstone of our lives is the key to our spiritual walk. That's, that's what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, has been trying to tell us over and over again throughout these, these weeks. And in, in our text today, the writer kind of puts an exclamation point on that by, by focusing our attention on our faith in him. That's what we're, we're going to see today. We're going to see, um, he's going to talk about how the outcome of focusing on Jesus is a greater trust in Jesus. The more we, the more we put our eyes, the more we think about, meditate, um, spend time contemplating and connecting with Jesus, the greater, our stronger our faith becomes in him. This is not true of anybody else. This is not true in our in our our, our uh, in humanity, right? If, if, if the more you focus on another person, an imperfect person, the more you're going to have reason to not trust that person, right? Because we are flawed. But in Jesus and God, we because He is perfect, because He is sinless, because He is always faithful. There, there is nothing that uh, the more time we spend with Him, the more we trust Him. We're also going to see today that he'll remind us a little bit, especially starting out, of what, what faith really is. You know, we use that term a lot, and it gets used in culture for a number of different things. But when, when, when the Bible talks about faith, what is it that we're talking about? We're going to look at what it does and doesn't do in our lives. We're also going to see how the Lord builds our faith in our lives. There's a process. We've talked about the, the writers mentioned this um, way early at the beginning of Hebrews. You remember we talked about this a little bit. He brings it full circle and kind of really hammers it home um, towards the end of the book. And so that, that's kind of where our directions are, uh, where we're going to be going today and hearing from, from the author of Hebrews. Um, but before we jump into the text, let's just invite the Lord. God, we, we thank you for this moment. Jesus, we thank you for, for being present here. Um, God, we ask that you would speak to us once again through your powerful word. Um, would, you, would you speak to our hearts individually? God, we open ourselves um, to what it is you have for us. And we just, we just say yes, whatever it is. Um, before you would even speak it, we, we, we say we're listening and, and we, we, we're here to, to hear and serve you. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we're just going to jump right into the text. The author starts out with kind of two foundational truths about faith. And we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, you're going to hear some classic Bible verses today, uh, th- verses you've heard probably your whole life. Um, there's a lot of just really, you know, kind of those, those super popular verses, uh, foundational verses uh, in, in this part of Hebrews. Um, and we start with, with, with two of them right here. Uh, starting verse one, faith is the confidence in what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. 
Through their faith, the people in the days of old earned a good reputation. So the, the first foundational truth we see is this, that faith is future-focused. It says it's the confidence that what we hope for will happen, and it's the assurance of, about things we can't see. Why? Because they haven't happened yet. So when we talk about faith, what is faith? Faith um, primarily is, is focused into the future. And this is, this is an important truth to, to uh, observe that. If, if faith is going to be the, the, the center of our lives, if God calls us to a life of faith, that means God is calling you to a life of looking forward, not backwards. Say that again. God, God is calling us to live a life that is focused on looking forward, not backward. Because that's where he is taking you. He is not taking you, this isn't, this isn't Michael J. Fox movie. He's not taking you back in time, right? We are going into the future, not back. <laughs> so faith is future focused. If we go down just a few more verses, we get this next kind of classic verse um, and, and uh, kind of uh, teaches us about faith. Verse 6 says, And it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. So what is this? What is the second foundational truth? It's simply this. Not only is, it, is faith future-focused, future but... Faith is not dependent on knowing the future. Uh, those may seem like they're in conflict, but, but, but they're not. And the key to strong faith really sits in the tension of those two truths, of being focused on the future, but yet at the same time not having this expectation that I have to know the future to have faith. Because it says it's impossible to please God without faith if we want to believe, and we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him, it doesn't say that we have to know what's going to happen. And then the, the, in Hebrews, the writer goes in and he gives a, a big long list. Hebrews 11 is most, most famously known as the Hall of Faith, right? The, you know, we have every year the NFL and all the sports, they have their Hall of Fame, you know, their. Uh, Hall of Fame or whatever, you get inductees. These are kind of like the, the, the Old Testament Hall of, Hall of Faith. Um, and he gives all of these stories about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abram and Sarah and Moses and Israel and, and Rahab. And we don't have time to read all of these accounts today, but, but we, you see some, some things kind of pop to the surface, uh, some consistencies in these people. The first one being that they were not perfect. Although they are considered righteous, it says you know, in some translations, it was credited to them righteousness, although they're considered the faithful. If you read the stories of these people, many of them, we have accounts of them in specific instances not living up to that. So they, these are imperfect people that God saw as faithful. Each of them had a, had a part to play in God's big story and plan for all of humanity. And they, they all experienced God's faithfulness. We're going to skip through their individual stories and, and, and kind of pick up in verse 13. It says, all these people died still believing what God had promised them. 
They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they would have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. While these people experienced on some level their hopes realized, God gave them specific messages, specific promises that he did, that they did see, it was only a taste of what they were truly hoping for. Their faith was bigger than, than just this earthly plan, their, their earthly um, kind of role. They had, they had their, their heart and their hope set on something much bigger. And this is a key to faith. It has to, our faith has to be set on something bigger than just, just this world. Verse 32, the author continues and he says, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, David and Samuel and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the flames of fire and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. What a, what a great list of faithful accomplishments of God, God overcoming through these people and for these people. And if we could just stop reading here, our understanding of faith would be so much simpler and so much more enjoyable. There are some, I shouldn't, I, we shouldn't stop reading scripture. Let's say that. We have to always read through the text because there's another part of this. It would be great if we could just stop right here and just say, hey, have faith. Everything works out here in this world, right? Do good, be good, think right. Rewards happen. The fire gets put out. The, the bill gets paid, always. Problem is, there's another part to this chapter, unfortunately. If we keep reading, it gets a little more complicated. Verse 35, but, uh, the but's in the Bible. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from, from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. Listen, our faith has to be bigger than our circumstances and our outcomes. It has to be. 
It was not their faith that separated these two groups of people. And there, there are some of us that struggle because we, our circumstances we feel like aren't lining up with, with our faith. And then we, we start to doubt whether we have faith because this truth is, there, this truth is getting distorted a little bit. In, in our culture, that the two always have to be perfectly in line. And um, with scripture here is clearly showing us that, that your, your circumstance and your faith don't necessarily always line up the way we think it should. Our faith can't be founded on our expectations of certain outcomes or rewards. It has to be rooted in something else, something bigger, something like God himself. His character, his faithfulness. Now listen, that's not to say that we shouldn't have faith for specific circumstances or expect that God is going to do uh, the miraculous in our lives or that he is a God of provision or any of that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it, it, it must be tempered. I love the story. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the story that told to bow, they say no, the king, you know, fiery furnace, and they're standing before the king, and, and I, love, I love their answer, you know, they're saying, king, look, we serve this God, and he is, he is big enough, and we believe he can save us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, your, the circumstance you're causing is not going to change my behavior, because I am faithful to this God, regardless of what happens here. That's strong faith. Listen, we don't, we don't have to be ignorant of possible circumstances to be standing strong in faith. And sometimes we get this idea that, um, you know, if I, if, if I even see or have a thought about something possibly not going just right, then, then I'm doubting God. No, you're, you're, you're aware of a possibility of a circumstance. That doesn't mean you're necessarily doubting God. Matter of fact, sometimes that's God trying to give you a heads up. Hey, bumps are coming. Because he doesn't always, you know, send the bulldozer, send the, the steamroller ahead of you to make the road nice and neat. Sometimes, sometimes he just gets in the car with you and says, you might want to buckle up. There's some potholes up here and this is, we're going to get through it. It'll be okay, but it, it, it's going to get bumpy here for a minute. That is the example all of these people listed have in common. They trusted and acted based on the belief in God's good plan, even when they couldn't understand what that plan was. Abraham on a mountain told to sacrifice his son. The only possible way for this great lineage that he's been promised to happen. And God says, sacrifice him. And he's up there and, you know, he's getting ready to, to kill Isaac. And, of course, God provides the ram. Abraham didn't know that that was the plan. <laughs> he just knew that there was a plan. <laughs> Our faith in God is greater than faith in a specific outcome. Because God has ideas and plans and outcomes that we aren't aware of. And their examples can serve as a model for us that encourages us to follow their lead. 
In chapter 12 of Hebrews, the, 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 the author kind of echoes this, this thought. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us, us, trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Chapter 11 is all about the what. What should we do? Chapter 12 now, he shifts his focus onto the how. He starts with this great kind of thesis verse about running this race and, and, and encouraged by all of these people. We look back and we, we, we hear all of their stories and, and see God's faithfulness in their life and what it looks like to have a, a faithful life. But how do we run this race? And chapter 12 gives us some clues, gives us some, some marching orders. And he answers number one right off the bat. I love it when they ask, ask a question and they just give you the answer right now. Like, a, like um, in high school, anybody remember open book tests? Oh man, those were awesome. Just, just let you, I never understood them. I didn't know what we were doing here. I didn't, I don't know why that was helpful. Like, am I really learning anything? But I was happy for him. It's kind of what we have here. He asks a question and then he just gives us the answer in verse two. We do this, by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and now he's, he's seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from the sinful people. And then you won't become weary and give up. If you want a strong, unwavering faith, it has to be rooted, rooted in a focus on Jesus. Focus on the reality that he loved you so much and wanted you for himself so much that he was willing to look at all that he was going to have to endure by putting on one of these ridiculous skin suits and being born in this little tiny nobody town to these little tiny nobody people and spending an entire life in obscurity only to burst on the scene. People give him a few claps and then execute him. Look at all that and go, for that, for him, for her, yeah, I'll make that trade. How can we respond to anything else other than whatever you want, Jesus? Whatever. Whatever you want, I'm in. It's when we take our eyes off of him that we get in trouble. It's when we start looking at others who we feel maybe in some situation have it better and we start to get jealous. It's when we see others suffering in a way that causes us fear and doubt because we, we see that it's happening to them and, and, and we, it forces us to confront the fact that maybe that could happen to us and, and we're, we're convinced that I don't know that I could handle what they're going through. When we take our eyes off Jesus, we get in trouble. All of these things are temporary and, and nothing compared to what God has in store for us. And we, as long as our eyes stay focused on Jesus, those things, those issues get put in their proper place. See, Jesus knows that about us, which is why he, in, in the words of Hebrew 12, 12 2, he, he doesn't just initiate our faith, he perfects it. Jesus knows that we're prone to take our eyes off of. We're, we're not good at, at keeping locked in like, like 
like Peter when he was walking on the water, right? He knows that about us. So he doesn't just initiate our faith. It says he, he perfects it. He completes it. And he does this through a process. He does this through a process that we don't like. And it's called discipline. And if we read on, we, we, we see how this, this plays out. Verse 5, he says, And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as children? He said, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. And don't give up when he corrects you. For the, Lord's, the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his other children, it means that you are an illegitimate and not really one of his children at all. I last, yesterday, I took my kids to uh, rock and jump. You know, it's like a trampoline park, one of the worst places in the face of the earth. And uh, <laughs> I went to, I had to use the restroom. So I go in the restroom and there's a, a, a father and his three-year-old, probably-ish son in there. And they're finishing up as I go in. So I'm, I'm now getting ready to leave. And uh, the, the, the kid has gone to the bathroom, washed his hands, and is now at the only, um, you know, air blower, dryer, hand thingy. And um, won't leave. Uh, apparently, this is the most entertaining thing in the tramp park for this three-year-old. And he, he's at the thing, and, and the door, the exit door is probably eight feet away. And the father is sitting at the door, holding it open, going, come on, Dylan. Come on, Dylan. 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 One, two. One, two. And I'm standing here with wet hands waiting a good five minutes. A good five minutes I waited till finally the kid got bored and, and, and left. I, I said all this to say, my reaction in that situation was completely based on the fact that, that was not my child. <laughs> right? Because if it's my child, I'm not standing there for five minutes. I'm picking him up and taking him where I want him to go. God has, God disciplines us because we are his. And it's, it's different than when it's somebody else's child. I grew up in my dad's house. There was a whole lot of stuff that I was not allowed to get away with that all my friends could. Right? You've probably had some of these experiences yourself. God disciplines those he loves. It is the path to greater faith. It is the path to staying focused on Jesus. We see how this kind of plays out. If we jump back into the text in verse 9, it says, Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the Father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they know how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. 
Listen, biblical discipline isn't just about punishment. It's actually primarily instruction and teaching. We, we don't, this is not a popular subject. Just FYI, I will never, we will never have a sermon series that is entitled Spiritual God's Discipline. Because I want you all to show up. That is not, and that is not a very attractive topic. I'm not saying we're not going to talk about it. I'm just not going to tell you till you get here. Uh, but biblical discipline is so much bigger than we, than, than we tend to make it out to be. When we hear that term discipline or biblical discipline, we, we, we immediately tend to go towards the punishment phase, right? I did something wrong. God is going to punish me for that wrong thing to bring about repentance. And that is, uh, that is spiritual discipline. That is God's discipline. But it is not the totality of his discipline. It's not even the majority of his discipline. And the more we understand how God disciplines us, the more we can learn to not only appreciate it and accept it, but we can learn to embrace it. And we can, we can learn to see it as the, the author here describes as an act of love instead of looking at it or feeling it and feeling rejected. Because that's really the biggest, one of the biggest differences in, in, in discipline is, is what, what does it produce in me? Do, do, I, do I realize that this is, whether it's your earthly father or your heavenly father, it's, it, it, is this something that I, I trust the person? I know that they're doing this for my good, even if I don't like it, even if I disagree with it, but I know that it's not an attack on me. God wants us to understand, even if we don't understand the specific in every given moment, we don't have to understand all of exactly why, why it's happening. But if we can understand and trust the God who's doing it, we can grow from it. Listen, Hollywood has done us a disservice when it comes to this idea of discipline and training. Big shock. Um, and and they, they, they make it look so triumphant, right? One of my favorite movies, you know, series of all times, the old classic Rockies, right? And, and, and Rockies all down and discouraged or whatever, and he, he gets beat. And then there's this great speech from his coach, depending on which Rocky you're watching, um, you know, and gets him going again, and and then, and then he he starts, and then starts the the cutscenes, right? And he's, you know, shows him picking up the weights, and all of a sudden, you know, the music kick in, kicks in, and you know, and the drums, and I am the tiger, you know, and he's running on the beach, and and it's so inspiring, and it's so like, yeah, that's not an accurate picture of what training is for a boxer. I mean, it's great for the movie, but real discipline, real training is slow and tedious and painful and time-consuming. I had a, I think I've told the story before, but I had a friend at my senior in high school um, who was uh, an all-state guard on our team, and um, the two of us, I would say, like, if you took both of us our freshman year, we were probably about the same level. Same build, same skills, same whatever. 
But by our senior year, he was all state, and I was nowhere near that. He did not develop more talent over those four years. The difference between the two of us was I had fun in high school, and he practiced. When we got back our, our, first, uh, our first day in the gym after summer break going into our senior year, uh, the, the coach is over here, and we're all kind of walking in. And I'll just never forget this, this, this exchange. That the, co- uh, the coach walks in, and, and, and my friend walks in the other side, and, and he, he calls out to him. His name is Brian. He goes, Brian, how many days? And Brian just looks at him and holds up. It goes like this. I'm like, what is that? I, so I'm, coach, what, what was that? He's like, oh, I was asking him how many days off he took this summer. None. Hard, tedious, but all state. Discipline takes effort. And like I said before, discipline is not just punishment. I hope, you, I hope you hear that this morning. God, God's, God's plan for your life is not to punish you into submission. <laughs> and so before we go much further, I really want to spend a few minutes kind of highlighting some of the ways that God disciplines us in our life that maybe we don't always recognize as, as discipline or, or we wouldn't put in that category, but, but they are. So I want to give us five ways. And I, I pray the Holy Spirit as we talk about these might open our eyes this morning to some of these um, so we might have a better appreciation or, or, or recognize and be able to participate a little bit um, more readily in this process. Because a lot of times with discipline, if you, if you have kids or we've all been a kid, you understand that, that discipline is, is a progression, typically, Right? And the sooner you get on board with the discipline process, the, the, the quicker you get off of the discipline progression. Does that make sense, you know? If, if, you, if my kids, when I, when I say, hey, I need, you to, I need you to pick this up, if they would just hear that instruction and pick that up, that would be the end of the discipline process, right? <laughs> but that's not typically where it ends. Um, we have to go on to other means and motivations to get that toy picked up because the instruction wasn't enough. Um, but here's five ways. I just want to spend a few moments looking at these. First one is, is modeling. Okay, modeling. Jesus shows us through his life both how to live and how to accept his discipline. This is, this is kind of your first um, and primary way that, that, that God wants us to, to learn from him. It's, it's, he, he came here to show us how to live, to show us what a life dedicated to, to God looks like, to show us even how to accept discipline. And this, this blows my mind. We actually, we actually talked about this at the beginning of this series. Listen, Jesus never sinned. Well, say that. But if you remember back a few weeks in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. That's, that's discipline. So Jesus models being disciplined by God. That's phenomenal to me. And then he puts us into communion to learn 
from each other's example. Hebrews 11, we just read example after example of people in Scripture that, that model for us how to live lives of faith. Paul says, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. I'm sure you have personal examples in your own life of people that you have modeled your life after, that, that you look at their life and you've seen their faithfulness with God and how, how, how it's changed them and transformed them, and, and you've been able to, to learn from that. So modeling is a huge important part of, of, of discipline. The second one is, is instruction. Instruction. We see this a lot of, of scripture. This is primarily through scripture. The, whole, the Bible is filled with instructions. And, you know, if we would just do what it says, <laughs> this would be the end of the discipline list. But it's not. We have scripture. We also have just the Holy Spirit speaking directly to our hearts or through, through our community, right? That's instruction. God gently nudges you in a, in a direction or, or, or highlights a thought or brings something to your, to your mind that, that you should, you, impresses on you, hey, you should be doing this or hey, don't, don't do that. It's what conviction is all about. It's the Holy Spirit instructing our hearts on how to live. And then we have, they have uh, use a kind of psychological term, we have positive reinforcement, right? Blessings that are connected directly to right living. It's, you, you, you do something and God, God releases blessing into your life to confirm and, and, and to, to kind of reinforce that behavior to help us understand that, 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 is, that is what he wants and that he's pleased, right? We do this. This could be an external thing, but a lot of the time, most of the time, it's not even like an external, like, you know, I did all this stuff right and, and you know, this, this tangible thing's, ha- this, I, you know, someone sends me a check in the mail or something. A lot of the time, it's, it's more internal. It's, it's the peace of God that gets released when we forgive, right? It's... It's the joy that comes when we, when we serve and we minister and we, we, we share the gospel with a friend. And that, that, that joy that just bubbles up. I see this a lot, you know, we mentioned it this morning, Serve the City. It's, a, you know, our week, our youth missions week. I see this over and over and over again that week, how, how just spending all day giving yourself to somebody else, even as, especially as a teenager, and some of them doing that for the first time and how, how it just releases this joy and this, this uh, excitement in them that, that, that isn't filled or they haven't experienced before. God uses positive reinforcement. He also teaches us through the negative consequences of our sin. Now, this is not the same as punishment. We'll talk about that in a second. This, is, this, isn't, this, isn't me, this isn't God punishing, God grounding you, God spanking you. This is, this is my, my son leaning back in a chair and me saying, hey, don't lean back in that chair, and him leaning back in the chair and the chair falling over and him hitting his head and me say, hey, shouldn't have leaned back in your chair. I didn't punish him. Gravity did that. I just used the opportunity to explain to him, to impress upon him why it's a bad idea to lean back in your chair. 
God does this a lot, (laughs) at least with me. I, uh, I think, I'm pretty sure it's still there on my Facebook profile, um, you know, where it says under education, I have listed School of Hard Knocks because this is usually where I end up. So teaching through negative consequences. There are things in our life that we don't listen and we, we experience the consequence of a bad choice and God will then convict us to help us understand and learn for the next time. This is not the same as punishment, but God does punish. Need a little sound effect button, you know. Dun, dun, dun. We don't, we don't like this We're uncomfortable with this topic sometimes, but the reality is that God does punish. Sometimes God causes painful things to happen in order to bring about a better result. It's always based in love. It's always about redemption. It's always about getting us closer and back to him, but sometimes that involves a spanking. That makes you uncomfortable or you you don't see that in scripture. I take you to Jonah. God says, hey, go, go tell these people to repent. Jonah says, those people are scum. I don't want to. Goes the other way, right? What happens? God sends a giant storm and a giant fish. It says right there, God sent. <laughs> these are not, these are not, it's not a coincidence. It didn't just happen to be a storm. It's not, not just the weirdest, most, you know, ridiculous coincidence that that the one recorded uh fish swallowing life-saving thing that ever happened happened to jonah no that was that was god god will punish you if you refuse the easier forms of discipline (laughs) it's it's not his first choice but he is a he is a he is a he is very comfortable in his own skin. And he is not afraid of you thinking he's a meanie. He is going to get your attention one way or another. Because he knows it's out of love. And eventually you'll figure that out too. And the quicker you figure that out, the less you have to really learn that he he can punish. So punishment. And then number five, teaching through life circumstances. Sometimes stuff happens, good and bad. And God, through the Holy Spirit, working in our lives and working through our friends, he will use that to help highlight and help us understand who he is and keep us focused on him. Romans eight twenty eight. you probably know it. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes doesn't say that God causes everything to happen, but God can be in everything. God uses everything at his disposal to train us how to stay fixed on him, firm in our faith and growing into the people that he created us to be, because that's his goal. 
God has had an idea in mind when he created you, and then there was the fall, and then there was your own stupidity, and there was other people's sin, and all these things broke and diminished and has contorted a bit. Who, who we are expressing ourselves to be, that's not the intent of who God wanted us to be. And so he is intent on re-renovating uh, us back into the, the, the person that he wants you to be. Because he's God, and he made you, and he wants you the way he wants you, and that's the way it is, because he's God. I highlight these methods not so that we can spend time trying to figure out what phase we're in. Sometimes we can, we can do that, and it can actually be a distraction at times. You, you don't always have to try and figure out every... Sometimes it's helpful to, to pause and, and kind of take stock what's going on here. But we don't have to understand every moment of every time what, what little category, you know, or every life circumstance falls into. I do it to encourage you that everything, in everything, God can be up to something. There's not a thing in your life that's happening or will happen or has happened that God can't use and isn't, can't be in to, to develop a closer relationship with him and bring you closer and closer to alignment with who he made you to be. doesn't matter. Every circumstance, God can be in it. And there's so much more to say on this subject um, that we can see in this chapter, but, but time would not allow. Um, so I'm going to conclude today and this, this series by kind of skipping down a little bit and looking at what the writer encourages us to, to be our response to this discipline. So we have, have these, these disciplines, and as they come, what, what, what should our, our proper response, how do we, we reply when we recognize that, that there's discipline going in our, in our lives? And three responses I think we see in, in towards the end of chapter 12, starting in verse 12, we see the first one. So, so take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. So first response is simply this, try again. Try again. Listen, there's no, there is no avoiding the discipline process. This is a big chunk of our life. It is never going to end. We are never, n- training for anything is not about just always getting it right and then moving on to the next thing and then getting it right and then moving on to the next thing. It's about failing and getting up and failing and getting up and failing and getting up and then failing and succeeding and failing and getting up and failing and succeeding until finally you master that and then you move on. That's, that's how we develop. That's how we grow. And so we have to fight this, this, um, this temptation because the, the enemy likes to get in. And every time we, we, don't, we fall down, every time we make a mistake, he tries to use that in your life to convince you that where you belong is where you are, which is down. And that's not God's plan. So our first response is to when we when we recognize we're under discipline we recognize something and we we, we're 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 missing the mark in some area is to recognize that we need to just try again just try again god is full of grace and mercy for a reason he knows it's going to take us a bunch of tries so first response try again and then verse 13, mark out a straight path for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but become strong. So first one was try again. Second one we see here is try together. 
Let's try together. Notice we mark out the path for others. He says, mark out the straight path so that those who are weak and lame will not fall. That, that's, that's a picture of us doing this together. Again, for the millionth time, following Jesus is a team sport. We have to do this together. And so we, we, we try again, we try together, and then we see our, our third response if we jump down to verse 28. Um, Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. Our third response is gratefulness, fear, and awe. Gratefulness, fear, and awe. That, we would, that the discipline would create a, not a, that's a crazy idea, but that discipline would create gratefulness. Man, that would be great if that was like the natural response in life. Wouldn't it? <laughs> that if, if our natural response to the discipline process was gratefulness, that would be amazing. If our kids, every time we told them to wash the dishes, they go, thank you for this opportunity to grow. That would be great. If every time you're, you know, your, your boss at work corrected your your work or told you how you needed to improve if your your immediate emotional response was i appreciate you so much thank you for helping me to become the best employee i can be this is not our typical response (laughs) but listen it's not most of our typical responses in most situations but the it is the response of those who become amazing at things. Who, if you want to become like in sports, the guys, the guys who, who become like all time greats, learn this early and and learn to not not just tolerate but appreciate to to crave to focus on the grind of discipline, to truly be grateful because they saw their focus was on what it was producing, not what it felt like. Our response, we can learn to be grateful for the discipline. We can be, learn to be in, in awe of God's work in our life if we will focus on Jesus and what it is he's doing in our life and not just on our own failures. So that's the third response and then finally, just to, to close out this, this thought, I, I love how, how this section ends um, with this like last little, such a, it's a short little verse, um, but it has such a big picture. And it, verse 29 says, for our God is a devouring or consuming fire. I love how he ends this passage, this, this section, this way with this, this idea that this is God's mission and goal in your life is, is to consume you. It, it's a callback to the Old Testament. If you remember, it, it's a callback to the story of Elijah. Remember Elijah and the, the prophets of Baal? That's kind of what he, he, he's, the, the writer is, is doing like this little Hebrew shorthand thing they do where they just kind of mention something and you're supposed to think of the whole story, right? And it's the story of Elijah and, and the, the Israel serving these, these foreign gods. And, and, and so Elijah challenges the, the, the prophets of Baal to a, to a competition, 
of who God, whose God is real. And they go up on the mountain, and the, you, know, you probably remember the story. There's, they each build a sacrifice. And he says, you go first. And the Baal, you know, the prophets of Baal, they're all day. They're calling out and slashing each other and slashing themselves. And Elijah just sits there and watches them and taunts them. And it's funny, I was actually talking with uh, Greg Van Brunt the other day about this story, and we were just laughing at how the, the language that Elijah used, if you, if you want to be accurate with it about what he's saying about the other God, I, I, I would get in trouble if I used that language in this building. Let's put it that way. So he's taunting them, and then finally after they kind of relent to give up, Elijah calls for the servants to come and let's pour some water on it. And they pour water and they remember and pour water. And, and finally, Elijah prays to God and God responds by devouring the whole thing. The sacrifice, the altar, the water. That's the picture that the, the, the author of Hebrews here is trying to, trying to elicit when he's talking about God is a devouring fire. He wants to consume every part of our lives. And he does it not because, not because he's angry, but because he's passionate. He's passionate that you and he become one. He's passionate that this, this kingdom, this earth that he created becomes restored to what he intended it to be. And so when we participate, when we recognize God's discipline, if we would just get that picture that, that all of this is coming from this passionate God that is intent on devouring everything in my life so that only what he wants remains, we would begin to see and participate in this discipline process so differently. Let that be our response when we start to recognize that there's a conflict in our life and that God is trying to communicate something or that there's some, some new way that God wants us to go or a decision that's, that's to be made and we're, we're, we're having some conflict about what's right or what, what God wants and what we want. If we would just, in those moments, remind ourselves or, or it be brought to our memory, Jesus, his great sacrifice and this picture of this huge, amazing, giant God that is passionate about consuming our lives would be so much more clear on how we are to live. I'm going to close in a, in a word of prayer. Um, but I also just want to give you a, just, just a chance to, to reflect um, in, in this moment before we leave of, of in your life, just simple question is, is there, is there an area of discipline that you've been resisting God? For whatever reason, out of fear, out of feeling that discipline and, and, and feeling it as a, as a rejection. You need to pray that you would help that God, the Holy Spirit, would, would just um, help you to see it as the act of love that it is so that you can receive it. Maybe it's a specific thing in your life, a specific sin or a specific attitude that, that you know that the Lord's been, you've noticed recently that isn't, isn't right. And 
it's a great opportunity just to just admit that and 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 ask ask God for for help. Maybe it's it, it's you know as we're talking we're talking those those front end you know kind of ways that God disciplines us through instruction and and life example and 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 all those things. Maybe you just realize you know I want to get better at those. I want to get better at hearing His still small voice early in the process, so I don't have to. It doesn't have to go so long. It doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. I don't have to keep failing at these things, or it doesn't have to get to a point where it's it's causing damage in my life for me to make a correction and you just want to ask the lord to to show you and and you want to rededicate yourself to to reading scripture and and prayer so that you god you can be more sensitized to what god's doing in your life so that he can lead you more simply whatever it is i just want to give you a moment to to have a conversation with god and then um i'll close this in, in in a word of prayer in just a second God, we thank you for your word. We take this moment and we, we just, we thank you for your discipline. God, we recognize this morning. Thank you for reminding us that it is all because you are passionately in love with us. And you are committed to seeing us become the people that you designed us to be, that you want us to be, that, that, that we would have a thriving, growing, deepening faith and relationship with you. God, we acknowledge those, those areas of, of discipline that maybe we've been neglecting or, or denying or minimizing. Um, we just... Say we just, no excuses, we're, we're just sorry and we ask that you forgive us and show us how to move forward, how to start succeeding in those areas. God, would you open our hearts and our eyes and our ears to, to hear your still small voice so that next time we can, we can hear that and, and just follow you like the good shepherd that you are. God, we thank you for, for community. We thank you that, that you put us together to encourage each other. As we go out from here this week, would you, would you give each of us opportunity to share in each other's lives, to share the hope that you put within us to encourage someone else? Pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. See you guys next week for Palm Sunday.